I'll be sharing with you for the next three weeks on a theme that is affecting each one of us in different ways. And uh, the theme is how we have been wired because of our cultures and what we've come from. But I wanted to start off at the very beginning of the story. And at the beginning of the story, there was only one culture, with just Adam and Eve in the garden. And God is their father, and he had set them into motion. It was just that one culture. And the culture was, you walk around naked. You don't realize it because you're not ashamed of anything. It's just this man and this woman that are walking around the garden, naming the animals, enjoying the food that they were eating. They were definitely plant-based diets that they enjoyed. They didn't have any of the meats and... Right, poor people. Maybe not, I don't know. Maybe that was the original intent. But anyway, uh, as all of that was happening, sin was there, Satan was there, And if you've read the first few chapters of Genesis, you know very easily you can identify some of these things. Uh, And I want us to look at chapter 3 of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, you'll turn with me, uh, and we'll talk about that for a little bit. Thank you. Chapter 3 tells us the story of what happened when Adam and Eve were in the garden and the serpent comes and speaks to Eve and says to her, look at this beautiful tree. The fruit of it will give you all these amazing things. You will be like God. She debates with him and then eventually she finds that the fruit of the tree is good for gaining wisdom and knowledge and it was good to eat. And she took and she offered her husband, Adam, the same, and he also took. Now, before we come to that, it's important to know that God spoke to Adam and told him not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because the day that humanity eats of it, humanity will die. Death will be certain. That was the context. That was the only law that God gave them. That was the only condition for existence and survival. So as all of this was happening, Eve eats of it, Adam eats of it, and the scripture says in verse 6 that their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed themselves covering with fig leaves. They didn't go make a grass skirt They didn't make coconut coverings. Some cultures do that. But they found the biggest leaf they could find close by, and that was the fig leaf. If you know fig leaves, they're pretty broad, pretty big. So they used that and sewed themselves covering so they can cover themselves. God shows up as he always did. And as he's walking in the garden, Adam and Eve hear his voice of his coming through the garden, and they hide. So God comes to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? And that's actually the question that God is asking each one of us constantly. That was the very first question asked of humanity. And it remains the question that God is asking each one of us. So today, if you're hearing his voice, no matter where you are in your relationship with him, he's still asking, where are you? Because there's so much more that he wants you to step into. There's so much more that he wants you to grow into that the question still remains. Where are you? So as Adam comes to him and answers him, Adam says to him, I heard your voice. Do you have it there? I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? 
So we see something very interesting in this dynamic. I'm going to have to switch devices here because this one is not working. Notice a few things. I've highlighted them in red. First thing that happened immediately after their encounter with this serpent and the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, eyes of both of them, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked and they made coverings from themselves. These three things speak to us of the reactions that we have to, to sin. And you'll notice these reactions in every person. No matter what age, no matter what culture, no matter what ethnicity, these reactions are common to all of humanity. The first one is an awareness of the, of the sin, an awareness of the wrong that we have done. And associated with that right away is guilt. Guilt immediately affects us when we come to realize our sinful state. The songs that we've been singing today, touch on everything that I'm going to be talking about today, next week, and the week after. I'll be sharing with you for three, uh, for three sermons. And as we touch on these things, you'll see how they are completely surrounding us and they're completely surrounding all of society. Everything that I'll be sharing today is building for next week and the week after. So take it in. You may wonder what the point is. You'll get to it as we get to the end of this sermon. The second thing that happens is the realization of our condition. When I realize that I'm guilty, associated with that realization, immediately it kicks in with, guilt, with uh, shame. They realized they were naked and they wanted to cover their nakedness. In other words, their shamefulness, they needed to deal with it. They needed to somehow appease the shame that they were bombarded with because of the guilt that they were experiencing. And you can see that even in the smallest child child is playing where they shouldn't be playing. A little trinket or something that's sitting on the living room table falls onto the ground and breaks. All of a sudden, the child realizes that it's their responsibility. Guilt kicks in. Shame kicks in. And the next reaction, which is what we see in Genesis 3, 8 to 11, when God shows up and they have the conversation, fear kicks in. I was afraid. And we see that constantly. A few days, a few weeks ago, I was uh, discussing some matters with somebody here in the congregation. And this, this same theme came up. And I shared with them that a number of years ago, I had shared a sermon on these three things. Guilt, shame, and fear. So I sent the sermon, the recording. And that's been passed around. Some of you may have heard it in, the, in one of the small groups. It was sent to your group by, by the person as well. He asked me and I said, for sure, go ahead. But these three things, and I shared in that sermon, I shared about what happens with us when we're speeding and we get pulled over with the wow, the, the red cherry on top, right? Same reactions. Uh-oh, my speedometer. I'm doing 80 and a 60. I realize I'm sinful. I broke the law. The immediate reaction is guilt, shame. You don't know how to deal with it. And your heart starts beating like crazy and, and it's fear. Our reaction to authority is fear. We were singing it earlier about the goodness of God. These three moral emotions, shame, guilt, and fear, are so pervasive all across society that they're the foundations of three types of cultures that we have developed into. And we are in a city that is very international. And we have people from every part of the world. And these people, us, in other words, have come packing with us the influence of our culture in everything that we do and think. So in every interaction, when I'm speaking with you and you're speaking with me, I'm packing this, this cultural stuff. I'm not going to call it baggage. This cultural 
influence that I've inherited because of where I was born, what family I was born in, what culture I was born in. Each one of us carries this stuff with us and we bring it into every situation and every conversation and every interaction. If you're working and your boss is from a specific culture, that specific culture is going to play into how that boss relates to you and how you relate to that boss. It could be a colleague, it could be a teacher, it could be a student, it could be anybody. It's even more critical to realize it when we have come from different cultures and our kids are born and raised in a different culture than our own. Because they're influenced by that culture to a higher degree than what we influence them in our own homes. Unless we realize that, we will have divisions between the generations and between one another. So what are some of the influences and what do they play? These three emotions. Guilt and innocence. This concept of how we stand innocent in our relationships. How we stand without guilt in our relationships. The concept of, of shame and honor. It's huge. In many cultures, shame and honor is so powerful that it actually can end up with someone dying because of shame. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'll explain it a little bit. The other is fear and power. And you find these in different types of societies. In the West, we have been influenced and it has become, because of the philosophical input that we have received from the Roman Empire days, some philosophers have even talked about this and they have made it part of the ideology of what we have inherited in the West, the Greek and the Roman mindset where the individual is key. When the individual is key and the rule of law is there, we become accountable for our actions individually. My own guilt, my own sin, my own breaking of the law is my problem. Of course it has ramifications and repercussions and ripple effects on the people around me, but it is my problem as to how I relate with it and how I, I deal with it. The other is a more communistic type society. And there are societies that you can relate to where the family, the neighborhood, the community, the village is the hub of everything. In an honor-shame context, if something happens in the village, oh my goodness, if you have done something wrong, everybody in the village will know it and it will have major impact on your family's reputation. Can you relate to this? It's not so much here in the West. It's only in your little circle that it has an impact, but it affects you personally the most. And then there is other societies where they're animistic. Animistic, in other words, they relate to everything in the context of the physical and the invisible. There is a spirit that is all around. There is demons, there is powers, there is all kinds of... Uh, things that are affecting us, everything is cause and effect, everything that I have done, oh, I better watch out for the powers that are going to be around me, lest they affect me. And, and, and yes, there's a faith in God in an abstract way, but it's better to appease the powers and the, these angelic things by becoming friendly with them, worshiping them, giving to them, sacrificing to them, all of that. And where do we find these things? We find them all over the world. They're in every society. These three cultural orientations or group personalities, you know how we all have personalities. There's also a group personality. We as a church community are developing a personality. You have a personality from the culture that you have come from. You can right away pick out, and I'm not being racist in saying this, I'm just being observational. You can pick out cultural differences from different people groups. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, if we name it and if we bias ourselves against it, that's racist. But if we're aware of it, so how to navigate with it, that's cultural awareness. We in Toronto have a hub. Missionaries from Germany come to Toronto before they are sent anywhere else for mission. Why? Because we have such a diverse level of presence here that they can be trained cross-culturally 
to become aware of the distinctives of the different cultures before they go into those cultures and minister to them. So we as Christians in the city, let, let alone the missionaries from the different parts of the world, if we're going to be sharing the gospel message with those around us, it would be very beneficial for us to know and be aware of these cultural differences. Not everybody thinks like me. Not everybody reacts like you. Everybody is different. And then bring all of that into a context of a city like Toronto where it's so diverse. These three distinctives now become so intermixed in one person because we're picking up from other people as well. So it gets a little bit complicated. Especially when you try to bring the gospel because look at these things. These three cultural orientations oops, affect our worldview. They affect how we view others. They affect our ethics. I have a story to tell you. The, the years ago, we were doing some recording. And we needed to, at the time, it was cassettes. Remember the cassettes? Young people, do you know what cassettes are? These are two little reels and they have tape on them and the tape is magnetized and you can listen to stuff. This is all before CDs and MP3s. So we were recording sermon series and putting them into little binders to make it available for people that were after a retreat, the teachings in the retreat, we were making these cassette sets available. So the person that was duplicating them came from a specific culture where it was different than mine. So I was asking, are the cassette tapes ready? Yes. Okay, can I get them now? Because no, they're still being recorded. I thought you said they were ready. Yes, they're ready. But they're not ready. Well, they're, they're, they're going to be ready. So which is it? Are they ready or not? So we had a little bit of a conflict. Why? Because in his mind, they're in the process, which means they're done. But in my, my mind, if they're not done, they're not done. Anyway, so we, that was just an expression for me to understand. And it's not about ethics. For me, it was ethics. But for him, it was just the way we talk. For me, it was ethics. You're lying to me. They're not ready. And that was an ethical dilemma for me. As to, do, do I believe this guy? Is his word always negative or true? Or can I trust him? All of these things were coming into play. But also, our identity is based on these things. How we view ourselves. How we react to others. How we identify ourselves. The notion of salvation is huge in this. Because of where we've come from. We have people here from different parts of the world. From the Far East, from the Central East, the Middle East, from this, uh, Europe and from, from the West. And our ideas of sin, our ideas of God, have been influenced by the culture that we have been raised in. And it affects how we relate to God, to sin, to salvation. So imagine how many mindsets are in this room right now. So when we're doing theology by song, which is a very powerful way of teaching, by the way, we learn a lot from our, from our songs. On one of the chats this morning, somebody sent a song about the power of God. Right? Beautiful song. But as she was relating to it, it was explaining this stuff from the perspective of a Christian who's now understood the power of God and what God can do. And it's not power that is held in the hand of ministers. It's not power that's hand, held in the hand of uh, magicians or witch doctors or people that have the power in the animistic world, but it's the held power in God's hands. So we're coming at it from different angles, but the reality of what we're experiencing is one and the same. The reality is one and the same. How we look at it is different. So when we look at these three things, shame. Guilt and fear. When we look at all these three, they form a dynamic. All three of them are there. But we're never at any one of them. Each one of us, because of where we've come from, lands somewhere. For example, those of us from the Middle East. 
You ready? Okay. Shame, guilt, and fear? Well, those of us from the Middle East have this notion of face. Do you know what I mean by face? Immediately, people from the East and the the Far East and the Middle East identify with that. And it's a big deal. It's a huge deal to save face, to keep face, right? It's all about honor. It's all about honor. And if you have lost face, you've lost honor. You're now walking in shame. But it's not entirely that because religion has played a key role in the culture in the Middle East because of the age of Christianity and Islam in that region. And with that, we have a sense of guilt and innocence. And notice the the little star is not all the way on the left on that diagonal line, which means it's only shame and guilt. But it's a little bit further in because there's also the issue of fear. Because built into us, there is this misunderstanding of who God is. Because of the different religions around us in the Middle East, because of the influences of non-Christian religions, we have come to understand God as an angry judge who's just sitting there waiting for us to cross the line for him to come and hit us on the head. Hit us on the head doesn't mean he just punishes us, like hurts us, but it could mean that we have a car accident. It could mean that we get fired from a job. And all of a sudden, we associate that with God is judging me. That has nothing to do with Scripture. The Bible doesn't talk about God that way at all. The Bible says that it is given to mankind to die once and then judgment. God doesn't judge you today. God is not going to judge you today. God, is wants, God wants to love you today. He wants to show you mercy today. He wants to show you that he is powerful to save you from all shame, from all guilt, from all fear. He wants to show you that in everything that you do. He wants to demonstrate his goodness. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the judgment of God that he's trying to communicate something to us. Those are demonic powers that want to play with our minds to to try to keep us locked into this triangle so that we don't get out of this. And as long as we're in here, we're puppets in the enemy's hands. He will manipulate us whichever way he wants. Now this has ramifications into, into social dynamics and how we relate to one another, in how we work with one another, how we work together. All of these things work within that diamond or that triangle. We function there generally as humans because we are broken, every single one of us. No matter how many times you've gone through healing and deliverance, no matter how many sessions of sozo you've sat through, no matter how much you have received healing, we still function in that so long as we're walking in our mortal bodies, we still function in that. I'm not convinced if you tell me, no, I've been healed and I'm out of this. I don't buy that. Because the struggles of humanity go with us to the grave. You can improve, you can shrink that diamond, you can become more and more like Christ in your dependence and your love for God and your understanding of goodness of God. That, that thing shrinks. And that's what we do as, as teachers, as pastors, as worship leaders. We try to bring this reality to light so that we can be freed from these things that are constantly coming against us. And the enemy of our soul is working to trap us here all the time. If you're from the south, anybody here from the south? South America, Central America, Africa? I don't see anybody. South Korea? Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) In relation to North Korea and its leader, yeah, I can see that. If we're from the south, and I don't mean Florida... Thank you. If we're from the South, the idea of the invisible world is very real. So if you're from Africa, if you're from Central America, I'm from North Africa. And it's just as present there. You know, the idea of drinking a cup of Turkish coffee or Egyptian coffee, and then afterwards you swirl the cup. You know where I'm going with this? 
Okay. It doesn't end at Africa. It goes a little bit further north to the Mediterranean and just the north of it. So if you're from the Greek islands, from South Italy, and any of these places, reading the cup, the coffee cup. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Reading that, why is that so prevalent in those cultures? Because we are down here somewhere with guilt and, and fear. We're struggling with these things and we want to break free and we want to have power in our lives, but we're stuck in this situation where we know that there's powers that are stronger than us and we don't know how to deal with it. So let's ask them, what do you see in my future? <laughs> it's funny, but it's reality. It doesn't, we don't leave that behind when we come to Canada. We come with it. We bring it with us. And it affects us. All of us from the West. Everybody, you can put your hand up for this one. All of us are affected by this, where we live according to a culture of the rule of law. If you cheat on your test and you get caught, you're in trouble. If you cheat on your taxes and you get audited, you're in trouble. It doesn't shame your family. You're guilty. But if you're from the East and you come into this Western world where that's happening and all of a sudden you get a C on one of your tests, your parents will take that as a huge fail. Right? A huge fail. It's a pass. A C is 60 plus. A fail is at 50. We were joking around one day and somebody was telling me this story where the, teacher, uh, the, the parent goes to the teacher and she's asking the teacher, what's wrong with my son? Is he stupid? Did I get a bad one? <laughs> Why? It's got nothing to do with her as the mother. It has nothing to do with what she is worth or not worth. But all of a sudden, the failure or the, the lack of well, you know, high grades or whatever affects her as a parent because of her understanding of her worth, because of the honor-shame system that she's come from, from the East. And I think you can all relate to these things. So in the West, the rule of law, guilty or innocent, affects everything that we do, and we value our identity not based on the cultural group that we're in or the family that we're from or the relationships that we have, but it's all about what we do. Your education, it's critical. If you don't have a high education here, you're considered a little lower in the West, right? So we push our kids to education. In the, in the East, it's also education is paramount. Why? Because it brings honor. It's not about achievement. It's about honor. But here it's about achievement because your worth is determined by your level of what you have done. Your education, the job that you have, the hobbies that you participate in, the sports that your kids are in, how well they do in those sports. All of that is coming from this Western mindset of the individual and guilt and innocence. It racks up points. So to summarize these few points, guilt and innocence is based on the individualistic mindset. I'm number one. I matter. It's all about right and wrong. Very little gray zone. Very little gray zone. It's either right or wrong. But what's interesting about it is that we have this inner desire to seek justice. I've been wronged. They got to do right. They got to pay for it. The first thing we hear about is, I'll take you to court. I'll call the cops. I'll sue you. This kind of language is coming from the mindset of the individual and the, the, the guilt and innocence mindset. But what's really interesting is that honesty, if you're a politician and you're caught with your hand in the cookie jar, having an affair, having stolen money, embezzled, whatever, fraud, if you're caught in that, your best approach is to take ownership because immediately you will be forgiven. How does that make sense? How does that make sense? 
We want our politicians to be good at their job. It doesn't matter what their moral fabric is. It doesn't matter how much they cheat, how much they, you know, have girlfriends outside of marriage and all of that. That's secondary to us. Because that's not what we're paying them as politicians to do. They're there to govern. But that would never fly in the East. If a politician is, caused, is, is caught in an affair, that politician's career is finished. It's totally a different mindset. It's based on what we're doing. One's job, one's education, one's hobbies, instead of family and ethnicity. These interrelated concepts of introspective conscience, confession, right and wrong, they're all social behavior in this type of culture, in the guilt innocence culture. People define themselves by their behaviors, and self-expression differs from the group, not but what group they're a part of. The group that you're a part of in this kind of society is only good for status, which is what you have achieved. It isn't about the group and what you're doing in the group. It's about you having achieved that group level and how you're functioning within it. Shame and honor. Honor is a person's social worth. Where you stand in society. How others view you. It's all because of relationships. It's all based on the relationships that we have. Honor comes from relationship. It doesn't come on its own. Achievement is all on its own. What you're doing is basically what you are doing on your own. It has nothing to do with other relationships. It has value within the context of relationships, but honor is entirely based on re relationships and what other things, uh, other think of you. Shame is the opposite. So it's exactly the negative rating. Imagine it's like a credit rating. Honor and shame is exactly like a credit rating. The more honor you have, the higher your credit rating, the more things you have access to and more power you have within that society. The less honor you have, the more shame you have, the more restricted you will be in that society. And this is the part that I didn't understand when that person was telling me about the tapes are being ready or they're ready. Behavior that's acceptable depends on the context and not the rules. Can you relate to that? Those of us from the East, especially the Middle East, you can definitely, you should be able to relate to that very easily. In some religions in the Middle East, actually lying is considered to be good. It's a white lie because it promotes the right things. I never understood this until recently. In this culture of shame and honor, Gift-giving and reciprocity to reciprocate gifts is so critical. You know, my dad used to say something that I, I, I didn't understand until more recently. I was 12 when we left Egypt, and when we came to Canada is when I heard him say it as I was getting older. He said the gifts that we get from people are nothing more than gifts and, uh, sorry, debts and obligations. Think about that. A gift is never just a gift. It's a debt that you owe somebody back or an obligation that you have to reciprocate and give it back. So, you know, you keep log of who gave you what at the wedding so that when you have your... You all relate to that? I don't think it matters what culture you're from. Anyway, but that's what seeps into Canadian culture because it's coming from all over these world parts. I don't know if you can see that. Okay. Acceptability in the guilt and shame culture, or sorry, in the guilt and innocence culture versus the shame-based culture. Acceptability is based on rules and laws. You obey the rules, you're acceptable. You break the rules, you're banned, you're banished, you're sent to jail, you're, you're punished, you're dealt with. In a shame-based culture, the relationships and the rules change. Is this helpful? Behavior is guided by an internal conscience in a law-based society. Guilt and innocence. You have your internal compass. You have to have that. 
Whereas in a shame-based, it's all based on the external community. What others think of you. What will others think? What will others say? Violation produces guilt. Violation produces shame. The core problem is I made a mistake. And we tell this to our kids. You're not a bad boy. You've just done something bad. Right? Whereas in the shame society, you're a bad boy. You're terrible. I don't want you anymore. Get out of here. (laughs) Right? We go to those extremes sometimes. Violations affect the transgressor where the transgressor was violations in a shame culture affect the entire group. What will our family's name be? And you find that sometimes in the Psalms. David is writing about the shame that Israel now has experienced because of their sin. We have become the laughing stock of all nations. Shame is prevalent there in Israel. It doesn't mean that that's prescriptive, okay? We have to know, when we read the scriptures, we really, scriptures, we really need to know the difference between what it's telling us to do or what it's telling us, the story that it's telling us. When David is writing these Psalms, he's telling us about how to deal with our own shame and guilt. It doesn't mean that we have to experience that when we have done something wrong. Of course, shame is there because we have done something wrong, but there's a way out. Violators' response, justify or apologize, like I said about the politicians. Justify means you pay the price. You pay the fine, you go to jail, you do whatever. You do the time. Right? So here, I mean, we even have language for it. You do the crime, you pay the time. Right? Violators response, hide or cover. Public's response, punish. To serve justice, exclude or remove the shame. To remove the shame. Means of resolution, forgiveness, grace, mercy. Means of resolution in a shame culture, the Godfather has to come and bring you out and put his arm around you and say, Guido's a good boy now. You know what I'm talking about? Right? So it takes someone with a higher level of authority to bring you to a restoration, to put you back into your place of honor. It's relational. This floored me today. I was telling you a few weeks ago that when Sujin was leading, the song that she picked, the number of songs that she had picked, each one of them affirmed to me that what I'm going to be preaching was bang on. And we never talked. We never talked, Aaron and I, about this sermon. But it affirms to me the same thing. The Lion of Judah, he is roaring with power. What does power talk about? Fear and power. We can no longer be afraid because the Lion now has the power, not the system's. Behold the cross. Why? Because on the cross, he took upon himself our shame. He became the guilty one. And we have now become honored to become children of God. The work of your power, sinner saved. In darkness, we were waiting without hope, without light, in guilt. What has response from heaven been for guilt? There was mercy in your eyes. Each one of the songs we sing today, we sang today, speak of the same issues. And they bring us to the same point. So our theology in worship is correct. We're dealing with these three core issues well. Thank you, worship team. Sujin, Aaron, thank you for the way that you lead us in worship and bring us to the place where even our songs have grounded, are grounded solidly in the theology of what the scripture teaches. They're not just fluff and good songs and musically good, but they've got depth. The rest of it you do very well as well. You are here touching every heart. That's where we ended. I don't know, sometimes you may watch me as I'm in the corner there worshiping, and you find me playing with my phone. That's what I was doing today taking snapshots of the lyrics of the songs and putting them into this presentation so I can share that with you, just to reinforce. I'm not texting. I'm not checking social media. (laughs) I'm doing what I believe is necessary for us to be able to communicate well together. So in this context, he's here touching every heart. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. This, this gospel that we have, the good news of this message that we have, the message of good news, is a message for every culture. 
we have to understand the dynamics of the cultures so that we can relate the message and the part that relates. If you're talking to somebody from a honor-shame dynamic culture background, and you keep talking to them about justification because of the law and the brokenness of the law and how you are now guilty, it's not going to necessarily hit the mark. Last time we had baptisms, every single person, Shole made note of it, and she texted me afterwards. She said, did you notice that every single person talked about the Father who is good in their lives? The good Father. God, obviously, but they also made reference to fathers in the congregations that are helping us see the face of God as a good Father. Why? Because that's the dynamic that we are in. We see the goodness of God by looking at that. And every single person, everyone, I worship you, I worship you, everyone, we are here, you are here, here healing every heart. So the cry of our heart is being met by this gospel. The need that we have, if we are carrying guilt because of some things that we have done, experiences that we have had, the gospel addresses that and brings us to the place of understanding that we are no longer in need to stand under, sh- uh, under the power of guilt because what he has accomplished on the cross is break that power over us and set us free and re- redeem us from the penalty of the guilt that we have been sentenced under. The same with shame. You lifted me up from the miry clay, Scripture says. You've set my feet on the solid rock, on solid ground. You've lifted me from the guilt and the shame that I was mired in. And you've set me up on solid foundation. When we begin to see God in the nature that he is, not in the nature that our culture or our society has dictated for us to see, but when we see him according to how he presents himself in his own word, when we understand that he is good, we were singing it. When we understand that he's truly good, in every way good, and that he loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes doesn't matter what cultural background you come from. Whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly now and in the future, right? So when we come to know that, we understand that this perfect love, this perfect love, God himself, from which all things flow, from which every goodness flows, from which every mercy flows, from which every grace flows. When we come to understand this character that he is, all of a sudden fear melts away because perfect love casts out all fear. The people that were being baptized shared about what their experience is and how they felt because they felt an environment of safety. An environment where they can express who they are, the struggles that they're going through. I remember one time we had somebody that was to be baptized and she was asking questions about being baptized and so forth. And she was from a... She she came from a lifestyle that would not be acceptable to you and I, biblically or, or scripturally. And she wasn't sure if she can get baptized. She was living in a sin. She came to me, she goes, what, what, who can get baptized? I opened the scripture and I said, here, look, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So she's saying, but, but I'm going to make the water dirty. So I prayed a quick prayer and I said, Lord, how do I answer her? And the words came to me immediately. He says, tell her you're going into the water before she will. That I am just as dirty. She immediately understood what I was saying. and She cried and wept and hugged me. And we went on with the baptism. After the baptism, I asked her, do you have anything to say? And in those baptisms, we used to have the worship team on the stage. And as soon as somebody was in the water, as they're coming out, the song would begin and the loudness and everything else, the celebration. We, we may do that again. But at that time, that's how we were doing every baptism. As she comes out, I'm asking her, do you have anything to say? She pumps her fists into the air 
and announces her sin. And I thought, oh my goodness, what did I just do? <laughs> so I called up Pastor Ian, our district superintendent for the Church of the Nazarene, and I said, this is what happened. He goes, don't you see? I said, what? You've provided a safe environment where she feels free enough to open her heart and tell you her deepest secret. And she said it publicly. That's what we have to be. Looking at all these cultural things isn't there for us to be able to just point the finger and say this culture is that, this culture is this. But it sensitizes us so that we can become a community. The church has to be the community that is safe for people to share, to open up, to be who they are. No matter how filthy, no matter how sinful, no matter how dirty, no matter how uncomfortable. You can't be perfect and then come to church. The church is for the broken. The church is a place for salvation for you and me. We're no different than the world outside. We're still going through our own struggles. We're still going through our own guilt, our own shame, our own fears. We just know the answer is right there and we can jump to it and grab hold of it. But we can't just keep that to ourselves. We've got to be open enough for people to see that this is a safe place. That they can be open with, with... And this is what's going to make the huge difference between us as older generation and the younger ones. Because the younger generation today, those that are in high school and university today, not even, the ones that are in primary school today, are facing struggles that you and I can't even begin to understand. They're facing challenges to their identity like no one has faced before. F openly. It used to be there before, but secretly. But now it's uncovered. And unless we become a safe environment for the fearful, for the shameful, for the guilty to come in and to shed all that off, we're not the church. We're not. We're just a social club that is a Christian social club. I don't want that. I'd hate that's to, to, to think that that's what we have become or will be. I want us to be the environment that is so safe that the woman that's at the well can begin to open her heart and tell Jesus to the point that she can now go back and tell her whole village and the whole village will be saved. That's the church. That's who the leader of the church was. He didn't fear her. He didn't think it was shameful for him to stand there not talking to this woman that is a sinner. But he put himself right next to her so that she can feel safety. And she did. It took a prophetic word when he spoke to her and told her, the number of husbands that she's had. And she went back and spoke to the village saying, this man knows my whole story. He read my mail. That's what the church is. So we have choices. We can continue with the struggles that we have, which we all have. It's, it's what it is. We have freedom. Yes, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We have freedom from all these things. But there are times that we stumble. There are times that we get caught in the whirlpool of the enemy. But we know the way out. And we know the way out is through this community that we can lean on each other, grab hold of one another, pray for me. I'm struggling. Do, please stand with me. I'm not sure how I'm going to make it. But it can't just be about us. We're left here to be a light to the world. So we have a decision to make today. And the decision is this. Will I live self-protection? Or I will take risk and trust myself into the community? That's really the heart of everything that I'm sharing. Will I take a risk and trust you with my garbage? Because when we begin to do that with one another here, it will create the safety of the environment that our children will see and will grow into. And together, multi-generationally, we'll be able to communicate that well to the society that we're in. It doesn't matter where people come from. Today we're seeing a, a large number of people coming from one culture group. But I guarantee you that's not what the Lord has in mind for us alone. He has a lot more in store. So let's stand and pray.
Father, you who's the way maker, the miracle worker. Oh. You keep every promise you have made. From the very first promise you made Adam and Eve that you will send a deliverer, to this day you have kept all your promises. You are the light in the darkness. You are my God. You who has taken a risk and trusted yourself in the womb of a virgin. You trusted that society would not stone her, that her groom would not leave her, that she would not abort or commit suicide out of the fear. You've trusted your spirit in her womb. And then you've trusted the message to 12 uneducated, uncultured men who took the message and spread it to the world. And you trust us with the same message today. So in return, Lord, we come to you and we say, Lord, we trust you. And here's the risky part. And we trust one another. We trust ourselves in each other's hands. Even when it's scary, when we look at the reactions or the actions of the others. Teach us, Lord, to depend on you by trusting others. Let me say that again. Teach us to depend on you by trusting others. We thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are yes and amen. And all your promises are true. And we thank you for the way forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday and we will continue where we left off.